I'm actually uh, in Beijing quite a bit. I'm not here on the weekends usually, so it's nice to be here on a Sunday and just to be able to share in worship and in the Word with, with all of you at CCC. We were in Beijing actually for five years, and we found our way to CCC the second year, so we were here for the last four of those five years. Uh, moved back to Canada in 2012, then, Stephen, we're not in, Can- in Canada now, we're, we're back in Hong Kong. Uh, I always love to come to Beijing, though, because it helps me with my self-image if I don't quite see myself correctly. I find Chinese will always um, t- speak the truth to me uh, in a very direct way. Yesterday, I was in a, in a taxi, and the driver just kind of looked at me, and was kind of studying me as he was driving, and, um, and he, then he said, uh, so how old are you? And I told him how old I am. And then he kept looking at my face, and he said, you know, I bet when you were younger, you actually were not bad looking. So, so, (laughs) if I had any pretension about my looks, that was uh, helpful for me to get that other outside perspective. Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 4 is our text this morning. And we might have a, it's up on the screen there. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed, and Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. I like to title my sermons, and this title, this sermon is titled "The Untouchables." If you're a, 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 if you're a little bit younger, you might think about a movie from the '80s. People from my generation uh, often think about this show from the '60s, the uh, the um, uh, uh, the era of, pro, era of prohibition. The Untouchables were crime fighters, um, and they fought against people like Al Capone. And the main character in that movie or the TV show, The Untouchables, was Elliot Ness. He was this one lawman who had the courage to stand up to organized crime. So he was this kind of super crime fighter. He strolled boldly into this world uh, of bad guys and bullets, and he was the one who dealt with the untouchables. Nobody else would touch them, so he was kind of this superman kind of police figure. But if you lived in India, the word untouchable would have an entirely different meaning for you. It would describe the lowest of the classes in the nation's caste system, the Dalits. So they are not allowed to go into the homes of anybody above them in their class. They're not allowed to be touched by anyone. They are very literally, in their culture, the untouchables. So both of these groups, the, um, the criminals who pack machine guns and the poorest of the poor, touchable for different reasons. We probably wouldn't dare stand up, most of us, to an Al Capone. But nor would a high-caste Indian let an untouchable Dalit into his house. Is there something wrong with my mic? Do I need to stand somewhere else? Okay, we're good. So I think that Christians largely carry a view of Jesus as a sort of super Elliot Ness the supreme crime fighter. He's the man of steel. The bullets bounce off him. He can stand up to anyone or anything that would make us afraid. As we read the gospel stories, we see that Jesus does indeed have power encounters with evil spirits. He overcomes them with a word. He does, but he doesn't do it with an Elliot Ness kind of swagger. 
What we see in the gospel stories is that Jesus primarily defeated evil by coming alongside the other kind of untouchable and choosing to fully identify with that person. So this story in the Matthew chapter 8, we see Jesus doing that. And what I want to uh, want us to go to this morning, part of the application of our word this morning, is that the writer to the Hebrews said that we need to go to, with Jesus outside the camp to those places in the world that the world doesn't largely accept, where people are marginalized. And he's our mentor in teaching us how to do that. So here's how I'd like us to approach this story this morning. About 500 years ago, the founder of the Jesuits, Ignatius of Loyola, taught about a form of gospel meditation in his spiritual exercises. And he taught his students to actually try to participate in the story, to place themselves in the story, and imagine themselves in the position of the characters of the story. And the purpose of all stories really is to help us to participate. When you read a good novel, it hooks you because it draws you into the story. You participate in that story with the characters. That's why for me, when I'm reading a a novel, I get attached to the characters. I have to go to the end to find out who's still living and who's dead so that I know who I should be attached to in this story. And the gospel story comes to us as a story. It's something that we have to participate in. So in this story, there's really three characters. Maybe go back to the, the scripture. Keep the scripture up on the screen if we could. There's three, story, three, three main characters, Jesus and the crowds, and then this man with leprosy. So let's first identify with the person of Jesus. Let's take his place in the story. You've just come down from the mountain, and on the mountain you delivered what would become your most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. You said an awful lot in that sermon. You talked about not judging other people. You said we need to love our enemies. We have to turn the other cheek. It's such a radical sermon that for centuries theologians would think we couldn't possibly take you at face value and would try to interpret your words in such a way that we could hear them and be less troubled than actually obeying them literally. But it was at the beginning of that sermon on the mountain, the Sermon on the Mount, where you said these words. The very first words you said were blessed are the poor in spirit. Those were the first words of the first sermon you preached in the New Testament. And so you wanted people to know first and foremost that it's the poor in spirit who are blessed. Your goal in that whole sermon was to train your disciples about what kingdom citizens really look like. And in your very first words, you emphasized to them that to even get into the kingdom... There has to be a poverty of spirit. That's the first quality you're looking for in a disciple. And you're all about making disciples. In fact, when you would leave the world, you would say to the people that you had trained that your greatest desire would be for them to go throughout the world and make a whole world full of disciples like that. Okay, let's just leave the identification with Jesus just for a moment and ask this question. What is a disciple? The Greek word methetes means a student. So what Jesus wants is a world full of students who make it their aim to learn from him. He wants the biggest open university in the world where we have one teacher. He doesn't want just believers, right? We know that. He has enough of those with the demons in hell already who believe in him. He wants students, people who believe in him, who will learn from him. I often ask, I have uh, a, a thing I run here in Beijing, I have some students, and I often ask my students here who their favorite teacher is and why. 
And sadly, I failed to make the list. But um, I've never heard them say things like, I really love my math teacher. He knew a lot of equations. Or my English teacher knew a lot of grammar. A teacher is usually a favorite teacher because they exert an influence on that student's life. So to say I'm a disciple of Jesus is to say that I'm learning from Jesus how to live my life. And in the entire gospel story, Jesus is training his students to live life in a way that's pleasing to God. So in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says things like, don't judge others, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, give your money away in secret, pray in secret, and so on, he's trying to make us into people that God is pleased with. In Luke 6.44, he would say these words, A disciple is not above his teacher, but when everyone has been fully trained, he will be like his teacher. Jesus simply wants us to be like him. So let's place ourselves back in the story again in the person of Jesus. You've just come down from the mountainside, from the mountain. The crowds are following you, including those disciples that you've been teaching. And suddenly there's a man before you. He's got white spots in his body, deformed fingers. And he comes and throws himself at your feet. He obviously has leprosy. And you look at this guy kneeling there at your feet, and you know right away he's taken a big risk to get near you. As a leper, he is an untouchable. He's worse than a Dalit in, in, in modern-day India. He lives outside of mainstream society in a leper colony. He's isolated, he's poor, and he's untouched. He's not supposed to be anywhere near the mainstream. If a leper happened to come into contact with clean people, he had to announce his arrival by saying the words, unclean, unclean. So here Jesus... Here, this man is kneeling before you. It's close enough to touch. The crowd around you is several steps back. And then you hear this man kneeling before you say one sentence, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. The crowd around you is watching to see what are you, what are you going to do. Will you ignore him? Will you move away from the risk of being made unclean and getting leprosy yourself? Instead, you just say in one sentence, I will be clean. This is the first miracle that Jesus does in Matthew's gospel. The first miracle Jesus does in Matthew's gospel. That means it's the first miracle he does in the New Testament. Remember, he's all about making disciples, and this is the very first thing he does. Now, of the four gospel writers, Matthew, I think, is the one who um, paints, he just paints a very unique portrait of Jesus. I wish we had eight hours. Go to the, to do a seminar on Matthew, but go to the next slide. This is kind of the flow of the gospel. There's an intro, the Sermon on the Mount, and then in chapter 8 to 10, he does 10 miracles, and this miracle is the first of the 10. 11 to, should be 26, or oh no, to 28, he's teaching and doing his death and Direction or the climax, we're still having the. And then finally, he said, at the very end, he says, Go and make disciples. Now, remember, Jesus is our teacher, he's our mentor. He's showing us how to live in this life and great commission that he's called us to be in. That great commission from Matthew 28 does not stand on its own. The Great Commission of uh, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, that we often take as our mission statement, 
doesn't stand on its own. It carries with it the whole content of Matthew's gospel. So when Jesus tells his disciples to go out and make disciples of the whole world, he wants them to do it in the way that they have been taught in this gospel that Matthew wrote. And the very first thing they learned as they see Jesus performing a miracle is to touch an untouchable person, which means that Jesus, in commissioning his disciples to go out to the whole world and make disciples, does not mean he just wants to go and talk them to go and talk to people. He wants them to go and touch people like he touched them, to find untouchable people in their worlds and to truly touch the untouchable. For 2,000 years, I think the church has been doing that in many ways. In fact, in the second century, next slide, just a hundred or years or so after Jesus, uh, when the church was growing, still a marginal sect, a man named Aristides wrote these words. Falsehood is not found among them. They love one another. From the widows, they do not turn away their esteem. They deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. When they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the spirit. This is the church. We are people, as students of Jesus, who touch the untouchable. We're particularly sensitive in our worlds to the marginalized, the poor, because this is the heart of our Lord. In 1992, Joy and I took, my wife Joy and I took our two kids to an orphanage in Nenning. Our oldest son was five at the time and our youngest was three. They're also Chinese, adopted Chinese kids. And we went to this place and I had never seen such a deplorable place in my life. And up to this day, I still have not. The orphanage was filled with two kinds of children, the children that parents didn't want, females and those with disabilities. When we walked onto that compound, The first thing we saw was handicapped children sitting on the orphanage on bare concrete, sores on their bodies, some of them sitting in their own feces. Joy was taken inside one room where a little boy, around eight years old, had burnt himself in his head with an electrical wire so badly, and the orphanage workers put him in that room to die. They gave him no food, no water, and they just put him in that place to die. Joy got to go in with another lady and just give him a little bit of water which may have been the last thing he drank or he consumed in his life. The most sad place in the orphanage was the baby room, about 20 babies laying side by side, all baby girls, bed sores, not given the nourishment to live. In fact, the orphanage workers felt they could not do anything but just let them die. And I was told as I went into that room, every single one of those baby girls would die. This was 1992. We have a friend from Hong Kong, a social worker. Her name is Kit Ying. Around that very time, Kit Ying decided to move into Nanning. She entered the orphanage. She didn't have outrage towards the system, but she just began serving in the place. Babies continued to die while she was there, but slowly she earned the trust of the workers. She held the babies, earned the trust of the local authorities. She ended up staying in Nanning for 20 years and completely changed the face of orphan care in that place. She went and she touched the marginalized, those that were cast off. So we first take the position of Jesus in this story, not because we're Jesus, but because he's our teacher. And as we see him touch this man with leprosy, 
the one at the margins of society, we learn two things from our teacher. The first thing we learn is that no one is truly untouchable. So whenever society would deem a person untouchable or relegate someone to the margins, we're to see that society is simply wrong. No one is untouchable. But second, we learn from Jesus that we're to give our attention to the marginalized. Remember, touching this man with leprosy is Jesus' very first miracle. We can't miss the lesson that he wants us as his disciples to learn. Wherever people are marginalized, at school through bullying, at work, on the streets, we disciples can continue his ministry. For those of us in cultures of wealth, this is particularly challenging because, frankly, most of us do not have any poor friends. Last year, I read a book um, called Friendship at the Margins by a guy who started an organization called Word Made Flesh Ministries. Their approach to ministry, when they send missionaries out to the world, they go and live in the poorest of the poor areas, like the people living in those areas, and they start just by building friendships with people. So they don't go with a plan or a vision. They go just and build friendships with people around them and let ministry come out of that. Very, very challenging book. Uh, But one of the points he made was that those of us from rich cultures really don't have many poor friends, and we desperately, for our sake, for our health, need poor friends. After I read this, I asked my son, um, Yikwa is his name, and his his wife, my daughter-in-law, Penny, I asked them if they have any poor friends. They live in Vancouver. And they thought about it for a second, and they said, well, we're probably the poorest of all of our friends. There's many reasons why we need to form friendships with the poor. The main reason, though, is not for our spiritual health, not to pat ourselves on the back. Because when we get to that point in Matthew's Gospel, just before Jesus goes to the cross, he gives another parable. And he actually says that his judgment of us, his eternal judgment of us, is partly conditional, is partly going to be based on what? Our response to the least of these. And if he can find in us no response, no positive, no Christ-like response to the least of these, who he calls the hungry, the naked, those in prison, the disenfranchised, he makes his judgment accordingly. Brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus, we desperately need the poor in our lives. Secondly, let's identify with the crowds. Go back to the scripture, please. Um, It might be the next slide. So at the beginning of this story, we read that the crowds were following Jesus. In the gospel stories, the crowd, the oklos in Greek, is also a key character, actually. It's both general and diverse. So today, you are the crowd. We are the crowd. We've come down from the mountain, and we're following Jesus. Some of us in the crowd are Pharisees. We've got the religious life nailed down pretty well. We think we're a little bit better than the rest. Most of us Pharisees cause the fights in the church. We're constantly arguing about theology because we think we have a handle on the truth. Some of you are tax collectors and prostitutes. Maybe you don't want to be identified as such, but face it, you are. And people don't like you in the church very much, but you do whatever you have to do to make a buck. 
But most of you are probably just average Joes and Janes. You're living each day at a time, hardworking, carpenters, teachers, fishermen. You don't do much that causes you to get noticed. So all of you, all of us in the crowd, we don't always agree among ourselves, but we usually don't question the status quo. And one thing that none of us in the crowd would ever do was to touch a man with leprosy. Now, you've been following Jesus around for a few days. It's kind of cool. He's a new teacher, says things you haven't heard before, seems to be able to do some miracles. He's sort of, for us as the crowd, the flavor of the month. He's iPhone 5 until iPhone 6 comes along. But none of us in this crowd are prepared for what we see Jesus do when he comes down from the mountain. One of you up front, Mark Stevenson, is the first to spot the unclean person, and he yells, Leper! And all of us scatter, like he's a skunk or a snake, not Mark, the leper. Because we know that to risk contact with that person could mean exile for us. So some of you are angry. This guy is here endangering our lives, our existence. Some of you are afraid. One of you yells, get out of here, you leper. And then your fear and your anger, as the crowd turns to amazement, Because as all of us are standing back, we look, and it's only Jesus standing there with this leper continuing to kneel at his feet. And you can't believe it when Jesus actually stretches out his hand and he touches the man. There's a collective gasp among us. Someone yells out, gross, he's actually touching him. And then you watch the leper and you notice the white spots on his body begin to disappear. You notice the deformity in his hands, his hand becoming straight. It was this kind of behavior, this willingness to break the rules for the sake of people that would eventually land Jesus on the cross. And it's those of us who are Pharisees in the crowd, those of us who always love rules more than people, who would eventually work the rest of the crowd so that by the end of the gospel story, we, the whole crowd, would be collectively crying out, crucify him, crucify him. You see, as part of the crowd, we'll only follow Jesus until he does, as long as he does what we want, if it's cool to follow him, and everyone thinks it's cool. If we're only willing to follow a popular Jesus, it means our God is popularity, because following Jesus must put us at odds with the world. It must. The crowd has a definition of success and a path to get there. Get good grades, get into a good university, get a good job, make lots of money, take lots of vacations. In Hong Kong recently, I saw a bus with a big ad on the picture, and it was a picture of a young boy, and this young boy was dreaming. There was this kind of bubble caption coming out of his dream, and in his dream was that he wants to retire when he's 40. Now, of course, you can't retire when you're 40 if you spend all your time touching lepers. I doubt if in our relentless schedule of after-school tutorials being tiger parents that many parents are actually taking their children to spend time with the poor. Maybe we think they'll do that when they're 40-year-old retirees. But let's save some money now. Today, I think much of the church is trying to be disciples while we are part of the crowd. But Jesus invites us to come out of the crowd, to take risks, to touch a few lepers, 
to go down. Well, the third character in the story that I'd like us to identify with, third and finally, is the leper himself. Let's take his place in this story. You don't know where you got the courage to take this risk, to incur the wrath of all of these people. But you'd heard about Jesus and you wondered, could this be the person who could give me my life back? So you decide to put it all on the line, risk making everyone mad at you, just so that you can get near to Jesus. And as you draw near, you hear the crowd yelling, but it's all kind of background noise as you're so focused on getting near to Jesus. Even from afar, you see something. There's something about him, maybe something in his eyes. There's compassion, acceptance, joy. So you find some courage rising in your heart. And you come and you kneel before him. And as you're kneeling there, your head down, you feel his hand on your shoulder. It's a firm grip. And actually the Greek word here, a little Greek aside, the Greek word here is not, for a, not a gentle touch, it's a firm grip, more like an embrace. You feel this very firm grip on your shoulder as if Jesus is entirely unashamed and unafraid to touch you. How long as a leper has it been since you felt the touch of another human being? You feel a tingle and then there's a warm flush. You look at the spots on your body. You see that they've vanished. Your deformed fingers have straightened out. That dead flesh that had no feelings before is now suddenly alive with feeling. That numbness in all your extremities is gone after Jesus touched you. Now here's the thing I want to say. In this story, we can take the place of Jesus as our teacher and learn from him. We must do that. We can take our place in the crowd and consider our own ambivalence to following Jesus fully. But more than anything, we have to take our place as the leper bowing at the feet of Jesus and hearing him say to us, Lord, if you are willing, or hearing ourselves say to him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. As I've watched Jesus, my teacher I've been learning how to touch the unclean a little better. In, when I lived in Beijing, I became friends with a beggar over by Jenny Liu's by the Lido Hotel. Uh, when I first met him, he just annoyed me. He kept coming up to me and asking for money. Uh, he was completely filthy, looked like he hadn't bathed for years, smelled horrible. My Chinese friends all told me, never give money to beggars. Don't trust them. They have more money than anybody else. In fact, in Jenny Lou's itself, there was a sign that said, don't give to the beggars. They have more money than you do. They actually said that on the sign. So I did it. I did my best to ignore him. He would come up to me every day, and I allowed myself the luxury of feeling annoyed by this human being. But then I became convicted, and partly it was due to Mark Stevenson, something he said to me one time. And I chose to start engaging with this person as a human being. He was trying to engage me in relationship. Now, he just wanted my money, but still he was trying to engage me. One day he pointed at my stomach, which was much bigger than his, and he tried to motion that he was hungry. So I decided every time I saw him, I would give him one RMB, mostly for my sake, just to open up my heart. And doing that just allowed us to form some kind of relationship. He always smiled when I gave him one RMB. He was happy. Then when I'd ride my bike to the supermarket, he'd say, you don't have to lock it. I'll, stand, I'll watch over your bike for you. 
Uh, we became friends. I learned his name was Mr. Leong. And I, every time I saw him, I would, I would address him as Mr. Leong. We talked. We began to c- converse together. And I thought about this story of Jesus touching the man with leprosy. And so when I would see Mr. Leong, I would make it a point of putting my hand on his filthy shoulder. Now, again, I don't know if there's another human being in the world that touched him or the last time another human being touched him. But I know Jesus wanted to use my hand to do that for Mr. Liao. So I do take my place in the story as a disciple learning from my teacher. But more importantly, I have to see that I, in fact, am Mr. Liao. In the presence of Jesus, I am as filthy and as malodorous as someone who hasn't washed for years. As part of the crowd, I'm better than the beggar. Maybe I can pass him by as part of the crowd, or maybe I can work up some kind of sympathy and do good and think I'm, on, you know, I'm from, some, from some platform of being better than him and help him. But no, I have to see that I am him. I am Mr. Liang. I am that beggar. And I have to come to Jesus first and foremost and say to him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. It's no coincidence, I think, that in the very first sermon Jesus preached, he started with the words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then in the very first act that he did, the first miracle, he touched that person who knew that he was poor in spirit and welcomed him into the kingdom of heaven. Can we see our poverty of spirit? In a successful and prosperous culture, Our spiritual poverty is so easily covered up by schedules, by wealth, by sophistication. In the church, it's so easily covered up by theology. Like the church at Laodicea, the last of the seven churches that Jesus rebuked, we need eyes to see again who we really are. That we are wretched, we are pitiful, we are poor that we are blind, and that we are naked. To truly minister with the heart of Christ to those on the margins does not, first of all, require that we go and find poor, poor people and become activists. It first requires that we are planted before Jesus as the leper, as the blind, as the pitiful, the wretched, the, the naked, and we say to him, have mercy on us who are sinners. Matthew's story, eventually, of course, leads us to the cross. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these three synoptic gospels, they craft these stories in a way that we see Jesus on his way to the cross, continually training his disciples, but then by the end of the story, they they all flee. They all run away. I don't know if you ever realized this, but the very best we could do was Peter. And the words of Peter, this very adamant decision, I will follow you, I'll even die with you was said just two hours before he said the word, Jesus who? I've never met anybody called Jesus. The gospel is written in such a way as to show us that we are all horrible disciples. We can't follow Jesus in the way he wants us to follow him. We're just horrible at it. But yet he gives us his body and his blood, and he welcomes us into covenant relationship with himself. Abide in Christ. What a wonderful theme for us as a church to focus on. Abide in Christ. 
To truly abide in him remains that that I, I develop this poverty of spirit and I retain this poverty of spirit. And I keep receiving that very warm and firm touch on, on, on me. The embrace of Jesus that tells me I'm completely accepted in the beloved because he is an accepting, loving Savior. I'm a leper. I'm a beggar. I'm filthy. I smell. I reek of sin. But my Lord Jesus touches me firmly in my sin and brings me to himself. And all he says to me is his disciple. And all he says to us is his disciples. Go and do likewise. As I have loved you, the worst of all sinners, go and love others, those on the margins, those rejected by the world. I've accepted you. Accept others. Let's pray. We thank you for your grace, our Lord Jesus Christ, that though you were rich, you became poor, so that we might become rich through all that you would give us. Thank you for the wealth that you've given us in the kingdom and the great blessing you've bestowed upon us of your very life. Thank you for choosing to touch us as untouchable as we were. And sometimes as untouchable as we feel when we truly understand the depths of who we are. You never give up on us. You put your hand out towards us and you embrace us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for never letting us go. Bless us as your people who follow you to be more fully uh, aware of the love by which we've been loved. Cognizant of that love to become more sensitive to those in this world that the rest of society ignores because you're gracious and kind. Send us on, we pray, in your most holy name. Amen.